This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year in music for 1997, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1997. We also make the case for putting Albert Collins into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And our Spotlight Walk of Fame is the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Hollywood, California. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 1997. In music, the song Candle in the Wind, the Princess Diana edition, was first played at Princess Diana's funeral, then released as its own single. It became the biggest selling single of the year and of all time worldwide. The biggest phenomenon of the year was also related to Great Britain, Spice Girl Mania, as the Spice Girls released their debut album, then released their movie Spice World at the end of the year. Other artists who burst onto the scene in 1997 included Third Eyed Blind, The Backstreet Boys, Meredith Brooks, Duncan Sheik, Savage Garden, Paula Cole, Missy Elliott, and Hanson. Radiohead released their iconic album, OK Computer, that year. Also out in 1997, Blank Recordable CDs, as the big three recording companies, TDK, Maxell, and Memorex, all put out different versions of the new technology. The Spice Girls album Spice was the biggest selling album of 1997, according to Billboard magazine. Other big albums were by Radiohead with OK Computer, U2, No Doubt, Notorious B.I.G., Puff Daddy, Mace, George Strait, Aerosmith, Scarface, Prodigy, Oasis, and Celine Dion. Aside from Elton's Candle in the Wind Princess Diana single, other big singles for the year were Jewel's You Were Meant for Me, Puff Daddy's I'll Be Missing You, and also Can't Nobody Hold Me Down, Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart, R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly, of course from Space Jam, En Vogue's Don't Let Go, Mark Morrison's classic R&B, Return of the Mac. Leanne Rhymes' How Do I Live, and The Spice Girls' Wannabe. The Spice Girls' movie Spice World was probably the biggest music film of the year. There were other music films released, though. For instance, you had Selena, starring Jennifer Lopez. You had the documentaries Year of the Horse, about Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and Rhyme and Reason, about hip-hop. There were also the animated musicals Anastasia, Cats Don't Dance, and Disney's Hercules. There was also the Disney Channel movie Cinderella, which starred Brandy as the title character and Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother. And even though they were black women playing what were traditionally white European roles, no one made a big deal about it. Unlike 2023's Little Mermaid's Black Mermaid, mind you. Love this era we're living in. Anywho... In country music, Garth Brooks played to over one million fans at a free concert in Central Park in New York City. 
Shania Twain released her album, Come On Over, which became the biggest-selling country album of all time. Other big albums were by George Strait, Leanne Rimes, Tim McGraw, Trisha Yearwood, the aforementioned Garth Brooks, Brooks and Dunn, Colin Ray, and Tracy Lawrence. Trisha Yearwood and Leanne Rimes both recorded versions of the song How Do I Live for the Nicolas Cage movie Con Air. Rimes was asked to record it first, but the record label thought that her voice sounded too young for the song, so they got Trisha Yearwood to sing it. Both versions ended up being released, and while Leanne Rimes' version hit number two on the pop charts, Trisha's version made it big on the country charts. Tim McGraw and Faith Hill's song, It's Your Love, became the first song to spend six straight weeks at number one on the country music charts in 20 years. Other artists with big country songs included Shania Twain, Kevin Sharp, George Strait, Deanne Carter, Martina McBride, Kenny Chesney, Garth Brooks, Sammy Kershaw, and Reba McIntyre. In hip-hop, Puff Daddy and the Family's No Way Out was the biggest album of the year. Four songs on the album went to the top of the charts, including I'll Be Missing You, while All About the Benjamins went to number two. The late Notorious B.I.G., who was killed in 1997, hit number one posthumously with Hypnotized. Other hip-hop artists who had a big 1997 included the Wu-Tang Clan, Bone Thugs-N-Harmony, DeBrat, Scarface, Mace, Busta Rhymes, Coolio, Timbaland and Magoo, and Warren G. Dance music, of course, was dominated on the charts by pop and R&B artists like Tony Braxton, U2, Madonna, Kenny G, Janet Jackson, George Michael, Mariah Carey, Usher, and Puff Daddy. And even though those artists were all over the number one dance lots on the dance charts, there were some more legit EDM artists who made an impact. For instance, Daft Punk released their debut album, Homework, and their landmark song, Defunk, went to number one. Faithless's classic song, Insomnia, I Can't Get No Sleep, was also at the top of the dance charts, as were Moby's James Bond theme, Sash's Ecuador, Ultra Nate's Free, Todd Terry's Something Going On, and Robert Miles' Fable. In theater, musicals that opened in 1997 included Titanic, Dream, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Jekyll and Hyde, and The Lion King. Musical revivals that opened included 1776, Candide, and Annie. In Latin music, the biggest artists were Julio and Enrique Iglesias, Grupo Limite, Selena, Shakira, Luis Miguel, Gypsy Kings, Juan Gabriel, Los Temerarios y Los del Rio, who went back to the Macarena well to try to repeat the success of their 1996 smash hit Macarena with Macarena Nonstop. Didn't do too well. One too many times at that well. Bands that formed in 1997 included Coldplay, The Buckwheat Boys, Death Cab for Cutie, Destiny's Child, Eiffel 65, Gym Class Heroes, Interpol, The Plain White Tees, Newfound Glory, The New Radicals, Solar Stone, Venga Boys, The Yin Yang Twins, and The White Stripes. Bands who broke up before, of course, their inevitable reunions or who announced their hiatus included except My Bloody Valentine, Bonham, Low Life, The Kinks, Big Audio Dynamite, Lodestar, 
New Riders of the Purple Sage, Obituary, The Cocktoo Twins, Quad City DJs, The Rembrandts, Dinosaur Jr., The Power Station, EMF, and Rainbow, Real to Real, Deatribe, Bread, The Fugees, The Gin Blossoms, Ghost Town DJs, Ugly Kid Joe, Throwing Muses, and Soundgarden. Bands that reformed in 1997 included Blondie, Depeche Mode, Echo and the Bunnymen, Jane's Addiction, and Sunny Day Real Estate. Artists who were born in 1997 included DJ Alan Walker, rappers Coy LeRae, Lil Yachty, Rico Nasty, Blueface, Cupcake, Asian Doll, Kodak Black, Zero Seventy Shake, and Lalisa Manoban, and singers Jungkook of BTS, Camila Cabello, Becky G, Her, Rose from Blackpink, Ruby Rose, Bella Thorne, Rebecca Black, Dina Lane from Fifth Harmony, Park Ji-Min, Lara Larson, Phineas O'Connell, Georgia Smith, and Youngblood. Artists who passed away in 1997 included the aforementioned Notorious B.I.G., who was shot and killed in a drive-by. Also, singers Towns Van Zant, Michael Hutchins, who committed suicide, John Denver, who passed away in an experimental plane crash, Jeff Buckley, who drowned, Fela Kuti, Laura Nero, Laverne Baker, Nicolette Larson, Ronnie Lane, Jimmy Rogers, Jimmy Witherspoon, Johnny Copeland, Thelma Carpenter, Billy McKenzie of The Associates, Ron Holden, Lawrence Payton of The Four Tops, guitarist Randy California, Luther Allison, and Michael Hedges, Elvis Presley's manager, the Colonel Tom Parker, opera singer Charles Craig, conductor George Solti, drummer Tony Williams, and jazz violinist Stefan Grappelli. In awards for the music of 1997, Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind won Album of the Year at the Grammy Awards, while Sean Colvin's Sonny Came Home won Song and Record of the Year. Paula Cole ended up winning Best New Artist. The ceremony, though, is probably better known for when New York actor Michael Portnoy went on stage shirtless during Bob Dylan's performance of his song Love Sick and started dancing with the words Soy Bomb written on his bare chest before, of course, being escorted off stage by security. At the MTV Video Music Awards, Jamiroquai won Video of the Year for Virtual Insanity. Leanne Rimes won Artist of the Year at the Billboard Music Awards. The Spice Girls were the big winners at the American Music Awards. Garth Brooks won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards. Erica Badu was the big winner at the Soul Train Music Awards. The Verve won Best British Album and All Saints won Best Song at the Brit Awards. Sarah McLaughlin was the big winner at the Juno Awards. Savage Garden won Album and Song of the Year at the Aria Music Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Dublin, Ireland that year, Katrina and the Waves from England won for the song Love Shine a Light. Katrina and the Waves were also one of the better-known Eurovision contestants since Celine Dion in 1988, with the band having found commercial success in 1985 with the hit song Walking on Sunshine. 
At the Tony Awards, Titanic won Best Musical and Chicago won Best Revival of a Musical. Musically at the Academy Awards, My Heart Will Go On from Titanic won Best Song, and since Best Film Score was split that year into two different categories, Anne Dudley's The Full Monty Score won Best Film Score for Musical or Comedy, while James Horner's score won Best Dramatic Film Score for Titanic. The Pulitzer Prize for Music went to Blood on the Fields by Wynton Marsalis, who became the first jazz artist to win that award. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on May 6th at the Renaissance Cleveland Hotel in Cleveland, Ohio for the first time since 1986, when it had always been held at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. There was some drama before the ceremony as Buffalo Springfield inductee Neil Young didn't show up for the induction because he was protesting people having to pay $1,500 per plate to be inducted. He was also, by the way, protesting that the ceremony was being broadcasted on VH1 for some reason or other. Not quite sure why. Fellow Buffalo Springfield's bandmate, Stephen Stills, was inducted twice that night, once as a member of Buffalo Springfield and once as a member of Crosby, Stills & Nash. At the ceremony, the hall inducted King Records founder Sid Nathan into the non-performers category. Mahalia Jackson and Bill Monroe were inducted into the early influencers category. And in the performers category, the hall inducted the Bee Gees, Buffalo Springfield, Crosby, Stills & Nash, Joni Mitchell, The Young Rascals, The Jackson Five, and this next group. If you are a fan of early hip-hop, then you know that a lot of samples came from two different people, James Brown and George Clinton. In fact, they were sampled so much that they could have never have worked again in their lives and lived off the royalties, if any of those people actually paid them royalties for the samples they took slash stole. What James Brown did for soul and R&B music, George did for funk music, injecting it with a psychedelic blend, inventing a new form of music called P-Funk, and all with a performance showmanship that has often been imitated but never duplicated ever since. George Clinton was born on July 22, 1941. He started a group at age 15 in Plainfield, New Jersey, called the Parliaments, whose name he took from Parliament Cigarettes. In the early years, his musical style was influenced by doo-wop and vocal R&B acts at the time. They garnered local recognition for their soulful performances and tight harmonies, displaying early signs of their musical prowess. In 1964, George decided to get a backup band for the group and drop doo-wop for smooth funk. His first backup band had Eddie Hazel on lead guitar, Towel Ross on rhythm guitar, Billy Bass Nelson on bass, of course, Tiki Fullwood on drums, and Mickey Atkins on keyboards. The Parliaments caught the attention of Motown Records in the early 1960s. After Motown signed them, they released a bunch of singles, including the regional hit I Want to Testify in 1967. 
However, despite some regional success in the upper Midwest area, the Parliament struggled to achieve widespread national recognition under Motown. Frustrated with Motown, though, and looking for a new direction, the group underwent a significant transformation. Due to the record label that they ended up on, Revolt Records, going bankrupt, they lost the rights to the name The Parliaments. The Parliaments then rebranded themselves as simply Parliament, shedding their previous sound and embracing a more experimental and progressive approach. This transformation allowed them to explore new musical territories and break free from the Motown assembly line way of doing things. Parliament's evolution was marked by a fusion of funk, soul, and various musical influences, drawing inspiration from James Brown, the psychedelic sounds of Jimi Hendrix, and, of course, Sly and the Family Stone. Parliament crafted their own distinct funk sound characterized by infectious bass lines, horn arrangements, and, of course, the legendary Mr. George Clinton's distinct vocal style. The band's breakthrough came with the release of their landmark album, The Mothership Connection, in 1975. This album introduced the concept of an intergalactic funk mythology with band members portraying extraterrestrial characters. The concept became a recurring theme in their subsequent albums and live performances, sometimes with over 40 performers on stage and with the iconic Mothership stage prop becoming a symbol of Parliament's imaginative and theatrical approach. The Mothership stage prop, by the way, is actually in the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., along with some of the group's costumes. In 1968, George decided to add an additional project to his repertoire. He took his backup band and called the new band Funkadelic, establishing their distinct musical identity and creating a new music genre, P-Funk. Billy Bass Nelson is actually the person who is credited with calling the band Funkadelic. This change reflected their intention to delve into a heavier guitar-oriented sound while retaining the rhythmic foundations of funk music. But it was also during this time that the band's lineup expanded to include such legendary performers as Bootsy Collins on bass and Bernie Worrell on keyboards. Eventually, after having both groups running separately at the same time to quench George's creative ideas, both bands would merge into Parliament Funkadelic. There were also spin-offs of the bands, such as Bootsy's Rubber Band and The Brides of Funkenstein. Funkadelic's self-titled debut album, released in 1970, showcased their experimental approach to music. Tracks like I'll Bet You and Music for My Mother epitomized their unique blend of psychedelic elements, distorted guitar riffs, and soulful vocals. Funkadelic's subsequent albums continued to push the boundaries of musical innovation. Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow in 1970 and 1971's Maggot Brain exemplified the band's cosmic themes and experimentalism. These albums featured extended jams, soulful ballads, and mesmerizing guitar solos. While initially operating outside of the mainstream and just being a cult act, Funkadelic achieved commercial success with the release of their album One Nation Under a Groove in 1978. 
The title track became an instant funk anthem embodying the band's message of unity and musical liberation. This commercial breakthrough propelled Funkadelic into the mainstream, solidifying their position as one of the foremost funk rock acts of the era. Funkadelic's influence extended far beyond their commercial success. Their groundbreaking fusion of funk rock and psychedelia inspired countless musicians across all genres. Their experimental sound, socially conscious lyrics, and mesmerizing stage performances left an indelible mark on the music industry, artists ranging from Prince and the Red Hot Chili Peppers to contemporary funk and rock acts continued to draw inspiration from Funkadelic's eclectic and boundary-breaking approach. As the 1980s came around, the collective then broke up and went their separate ways. A lot of them went on to other projects, solo albums, or guest spots on other artists' tours. For instance, Bernie Worrell, for a time, actually went on tour with the group The Pretenders. Bootsy Collins ended up on a number of other artists' songs, most notably D-Light's classic dance track, Groove is in the Heart, along with putting out his own albums. George kept going with solo work and had the hit song Atomic Dog, which got sampled a ton of times along with getting put in various commercials and movies having dogs in them. George eventually put a new collective of artists together for the 21st century, named them Parliament Funkadelic, and went out on tour again. Due to worsening medical conditions, though, he's either in the middle of his farewell tour as we speak, or he's finally concluded it. Either separately or as a combined collective, the groups put out some of the most iconic funk albums and songs of all times. Albums such as Mothership Connection, One Nation Under a Groove, and Up for the Downstroke, and singles such as Stomp, One Nation Under a Groove, and Flashlight. They've also received a Grammy Award as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Recording Academy. When it came time for the collective to be inducted, the list of official inductees was whittled down from almost a hundred different members over the decades to 15 inductees. Presented for induction by, of course, 2004 Rock Hall inductee Prince, when you think about it, makes sense. All hail the mothership. The collective known as Parliament Funkadelic. With Bernie Worrell, Bootsy Collins, Calvin Thang Simon, Cardell Boogie Mawson, Clarence Fuzzy Haskins, Eddie Hazel, Gary M. Scheider, Gene Grady Thomas, Glenn Lamont Goines, Jerome Bigfoot Braley, Michael Kid Funkadelic Hampton, Raymond Davis, Tiki Fullwood, Walter Juni Morrison, William Big Bass Nelson Jr., and the P-Funk master himself, Mr. George Clinton, all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. 
So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we're going to make the case for putting Albert Collins into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I would say my usual to the tail of the tape we go. However, Albert really wasn't that kind of an artist because he was a blues artist. Albert put out 10 studio albums and 20 live albums. Some of them did okay as far as blues albums went. His main strengths were in being a guitar style innovator. Albert used a capo, which is placed on the guitar neck and raises the pitch. He also tuned his guitar differently and was known for his powerful playing style. He was also known as the master of the Telecaster due to the Fender Telecaster being his guitar of choice. Robert Cray was influenced by him so much that the two of them put out an album together. Stevie Ray and Jimmy Vaughn were also influenced by Albert. Now, those credentials alone should make him eligible for the Hall in most of those other categories, you would think, and yet, Albert's not in. It is high time that the Hall voters saw the error of their ways and inducted the master of the Telecaster, blues great Albert Collins, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in whatever category they can attempt to get him into. There are many walks of fame in the world. There's the Aerospace Walk of Honor in Lancaster, California, the Almeria Walk of Fame in Almeria, Spain, the Australian Film Walk of Fame in Sydney, Australia. However, when you think of walks of fame, you really only think of one. It is the most famous walk of fame of them all. It is the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Hollywood, California. The idea for the walk was dreamed up by E.M. Stewart, who was president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce in 1953. People think that the idea for having stars actually came from the Hollywood Hotel, which had stars on the ceilings of its dining room. The final parameters for the project were agreed upon in 1955 and presented to the Los Angeles City Council in 1956. Construction for the walk started in 1958 and ended in 1960. There were eight people who were supposed to be given stars first. Olive Borden, Ronald Coleman, Louise Frazenda, Preston Foster, Burt Lancaster, Edward Sedgwick, Ernest Torrance, and Joanne Woodward. However, director Sidney Kramer is credited with having his star installed on the actual Walk of Fame first on March 28, 1960. Popular myth is that Joanne Woodward was the first star, but she was the first star to be photographed posing with her star. But that myth stuck because Pixar didn't happen, you know. The walk covers 1.3 miles down Hollywood Boulevard with a few side streets added as space permits. As of the beginning of 2023, there were 2,752 stars. The stars are awarded in five categories, film, 
television, theater slash live performance, radio, and music. For our podcast, we'll only be dealing with artists who were awarded in at least the radio and music categories. People who get stars have to pay $75,000 for the upkeep to the star, which is up from $50,000 back in 2020. Each year, the Chamber of Commerce gets over 200 names for consideration for a star, but only 20 to 24 stars are awarded on average during a normal year. There has only been one star so far that is not actually put on an existing sidewalk, Muhammad Ali's, because he didn't want it to be walked on because he was a champion. He is correct. He was actually inducted into the theater slash live performance category, and his star is on a wall at Hollywood and Highland at 6801 Hollywood Boulevard, for those of you out in Hollywood who want to check it out. There have also been special stars given out to people who were part of the Hollywood community, such as former Los Angeles mayor, the late Tom Bradley, and honorary mayor of Hollywood and the guy most associated with promoting the Walk of Fame, the late great Johnny Grant. There have been stars given to people who were not entertainers, but had done important things, such as, for instance, the crew of Apollo 11. Usually, those stars are put in the live performance category because those performances usually ended up on television somehow. There have been two presidents so far who were given stars, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. Reagan was given one for his radio and acting career before he became president, and Trump because of his TV show The Apprentice. Only one star so far in the history of the Walk of Fame has ever been considered for removal from the Walk of Fame, Trump's. As of yet, no final decision has been made about removing it, but I tend to doubt that it's going to get removed. Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers were a doo-wop group that gained prominence in the late 1950s. The group was formed in New York City in 1954 and consisted of five members, Frankie Lyman, Herman Santiago, Jimmy Merchant, Joe Negroni, and Sherman Garns. They were known for their distinctive harmonies and their youthful energy, which helped to define the sound of rock and roll at the time. In 1954, Frankie Lyman was singing on the street corner with some friends when Herman Santiago overheard him and asked him to join his group, the Ermines. Lyman agreed and began performing with the group, but it soon became clear that he was the standout talent. The group changed their name to the Teenagers, and Lyman became their lead singer. The group began performing at local talent shows and clubs, honing their craft and developing a unique sound that blended doo-wop harmonies with Latin rhythms. In 1955, they caught the attention of record producer George Goldner, who signed them to his G Records label. Their first single, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, became an instant smash hit. The song reached number one on the R&B charts and number six on the pop charts, making them one of the first African-American groups to achieve mainstream success and making Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers one of the hottest acts in rock and roll at the time and one of the most popular groups in any music genre of the late 50s. Their success continued with a string of hit singles, including I Want You To Be My Girl, Goody Goody, I Promise To Remember, Share, 
Why Do Birds Sing So Gay, and The ABCs of Love, all of which showcase their tight harmonies and infectious melodies. They also appeared in several films, including Rock, Rock, Rock and Mr. Rock and Roll. The group's popularity was further cemented by their live performances, which were known for their energy and enthusiasm. They toured extensively throughout the United States, performing at concerts on television shows, and became one of the most sought-after acts in the country. During their brief run in the spotlight, tensions within the group began to emerge. One of the main sources of tension in the group was the unequal distribution of fame and attention. Frankie Lyman, as the lead singer and songwriter, was the clear star of the group and received the lion's share of the media attention and fan adoration. And this, of course, led to jealousy and resentment among the other members who felt overshadowed and undervalued. Additionally, there were personal conflicts and disagreements between the group members. For instance, there was tension between Lyman and Jimmy Merchant, the group's second lead singer, over who should have more vocal solos. There were also disputes over finances, with some members feeling that they were not being fairly compensated for their contributions. Another factor contributing to the group's tensions was the influence of external forces, specifically the group's manager, Morris Levy. Levy was an extremely notorious figure in the music industry, known for his shady business practices and mafia-style ways of doing business. Levy's control over the group's finances and career decisions caused a lot of resentment and mistrust among the members who felt that they were being exploited for Levy's personal gain. They were correct. Then there was Frankie Lyman himself, who in particular struggled with drug addiction and legal issues, and his behavior often caused tension within the group. Lyman's troubles with drugs actually began in his teenage years when he was introduced to heroin by an older musician. He quickly became addicted and his drug use escalated over time, leading to a number of negative consequences for his personal and professional life. In addition to his drug addiction, Lyman also had numerous run-ins with the law. He was arrested multiple times for drug possession and other drug-related offenses, and also faced charges for stealing a woman's purse and for failing to pay taxes on his earnings as a musician. Unfortunately, all the group's resentment of Frankie, the group's bad finances, and the continuation of Frankie's drug and legal problems all came to a head in 1957 when Frankie left the group. Despite his legal issues and struggles with addiction, Lyman continued to perform and record music through the 1960s. However, his career declined rapidly in the late 1960s, due in part to his drug use and erratic behavior. Lyman's drug addiction and legal issues came to a tragic end in 1968, when he died of a heroin overdose in his grandmother's bathroom. He was just 25 years old at the time of his death. As for the rest of the group, the remaining members continued to perform under the name The Teenagers, but were unable to recapture the success that they had achieved with Lyman as their frontman. The group continued to experience internal conflicts and lineup changes before eventually disbanding in the early 1960s. Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers are an important part of the history of rock and roll. 
the group's unique sound and youthful energy helped to define the sound of rock and roll in the late 1950s, and they were one of the first racially integrated groups to achieve mainstream success in rock and roll and especially in doo-wop. At a time when segregation was still the norm in many parts of America, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers brought together members of different races and backgrounds to create a sound that was both fresh and exciting for its time. Their music helped to bridge the gap between different communities and brought people together through, of course, the power of music. In addition to helping to diversify rock and roll groups in the early days of the genre, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers were also instrumental in helping to shape the sound of rock and roll itself. Their tight harmonies and catchy melodies helped to establish the doo-wop style that would go on to influence countless artists in the years to come and help to shape the sound of early rock and roll. Their music was a major influence on other doo-wop groups of the era, such as the Drifters, the Coasters, and the Platters. They were also one of the first groups to incorporate Latin rhythms into their music, helping to pave the way for the Latin rock movement that would emerge in the 1960s and beyond. The group itself has been the subject of pop culture tributes. Their music, for instance, has also been included in numerous film and television soundtracks and has also been covered by a wide range of artists, including the Beach Boys and Boys to Men, along with Diana Ross, who had a chart-topping hit with her version of Why Do Fools Fall in Love. The group has also been the subject of a number of documentaries and biopics, which have helped to keep their legacy alive and to introduce their music to new generations of fans. Some of the most notable of these include Why Do Fools Fall in Love, a 1998 biopic about Frankie Lyman, and The Teenagers, The Story of Frankie Lyman and His Girlfriends, a 2007 documentary about the group, and of course, all the women that they had, specifically Frankie. In addition to all of the pop culture love that the group has received, individual members of the group have also been recognized for their contributions to music. Herman Santiago, for example, was inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2003, and Joe Negroni was posthumously inducted in 2010. Despite their relatively short career, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers left a lasting impact on the history of rock and roll. Their music continues to be celebrated and enjoyed by fans around the world, and their influence can be heard in the works of countless artists and musicians. By breaking down barriers and creating a sound that was both innovative and inclusive, they helped to shape the direction of rock and roll when the genre was becoming popular and ensure rock and roll's enduring legacy as one of the most important musical genres of the 20th century. Located at 7083 Hollywood Boulevard in front of an all-glass office building, you will find the star of Frankie Lyman without the teenagers for some reason or other. On the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Hollywood, California. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. Music